0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them, but instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the
1: business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given.
0: They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organizations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said, that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing, and they wish they could be doing
1: something as good.
0: So, from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this.
1: I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh,
0: you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else.
1: So, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us.
0: So, if you're looking for an agency. That can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you, you can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. In this one, I speak to Augusto Negrillo, managing director at Vivero. One of the hot topics that comes up a lot in my conversations with consultants, and I've talked to a number of people about it on the podcast, is M and A. And now, while it's not the goal for everyone, there are many consultancies, and particularly at the boutique end, where the founders are looking towards an exit plan—be that in the next two, the next five, or next ten years. And while most people know the terminology, we hear about the exits and the multiples and the money, very few actually know about what it takes to go from start to exit and everything you need to do along the way. So to help demystify that process and share how you can build both a profitable and a valuable consulting business, I invited Augusta on the show. Now, Augusto is someone I have known for a long time and love both the expertise and the energy he brings to what he does. As you'll hear in today's conversation, there is both a lot of great lessons as well as some rather amusing tangents. Now, just so that it makes sense when you do listen, for context, prior to hitting record on this, Augusto and I had somehow got onto talking about the animal noises of the world before we started recording. A little bit of that creeps into this conversation. I'll say no more, and all will become clear as you start to listen. But first, who is Augusto, and what are you about to hear us talk about? Having started his career in software development, Augusto quickly realized that that behind-the-scenes coding life wasn't for him, and instead he preferred being out in the field working with customers, helping them to decode and transform their businesses. His consulting career took him to the other side of the world and back again taking leadership roles in a range of boutiques with a focus on growth, looking at everything from sales to operations to M&A. Having been involved in multiple transactions and seen both the good and the bad, Augusto decided to launch Vivero, an advisory firm specializing in business growth, mergers and acquisitions for boutique consultancies. In this conversation, we discuss a whole load of key questions related to building value in your consultancy. We discuss Augusto's journey, and he shares his top advice and learnings from his career to date. We talk about the key drivers to growing the value of your consultancy, and why revenue growth doesn't always equal value growth. We discuss the importance of building a great business, and not just a business to sell as well as the three key groups that you need to consider when thinking about any major strategic decision for your consultancy. And we explore Augusto's approach to business growth and acquisitions and how Vivero helped their clients do both of those things. Something that, as you will hear, involves far more talk of wine, snacks and exotic fish than you may first expect. So whether you are at the start of your journey and just looking to set your consultancy up for long-term success, or maybe you are further down the road and you're starting to plan for expansion or exit, I know you are going to love this episode and get so much from Augusto's advice. So with the intro done, with the caveats given, all that is left to say is please enjoy today's conversation with Augusto Negrile. Augusto, thank you very much for coming on the show. From our short chat ahead of this, obviously we've known each other a long time, but just our little conversation here about the animal noises of the globe, (laughs) I know we are in for a good conversation. But to kick us off for our listeners who maybe don't know you so well, could you give us an overview of your background and how you got to where you are today?
1: Okay, so I'll give you a quick Overview. So I've been in consulting for all my life. I think longer. I actually was in consulting before I knew I was in consulting. And it is true. I started in medical software development. And uh, though I fancy myself as an amazing developer, I don't think I was technically that sound. And so I got promoted very quickly, very rapidly. Uh, but one thing led to the other. I think I suppose it was a, a, the virtue of really liking being with customers that eventually took me out there. And someone really clever that was running the department said to me, "Just go out. Maybe they, were, they wanted to get rid of me. I don't know." <laughs> they sent me out there into the field, and that's when I started consulting. And I didn't know I was doing it. And it was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. And so I went from there to eventually I found myself in Australia working in a consulting business, and things going well, and taking more and more responsibility. Eventually, running business and setting up and starting other businesses and helping acquire businesses and selling those businesses in the process where I learned how to do things both really well and um, maybe not that well in the interest of improving your P&L or your balance sheet at the right time and making a nice, hefty bonus. I did think I was the wolf of Wall Street, though. It was great. (laughs) I did not last very long. but uh, so it, it was fantastic and it, it clearly consulting was suited for me it's you know high pace this is mid-market business low mid-market businesses smes high pace high visibility lots of excitement lots of learning lots of client interaction which is the thing that i really enjoy we came back to europe eight years ago my wife is english we wanted to be closer to family so it was a short project six months it's eight years now so there you go better planning and and ended up Taking over into well, joining another business and eventually running another business here in the UK. So, it's, 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 I suppose it's a bit of a default that I always go to consulting because I really like the nature of it. So, I did say earlier, and I'm going to say now because it is true, it's, it's all been more serendipity than planning. <laughs> I'm afraid. I, th- I might say something different if you, if you force me to sound more, more professional. But the truth is, I've been really, really lucky with the people that I've come across, with the business that I've worked with, the, with the opportunities that I, that I've seized, and which pretty much is anyone that I've spotted along the way. I'm, uh, I'm the sort of person that raises their hand and says, Hey, I'll do it before I know what I'm getting myself into. And it's helped me quite well, uh, but mostly because of the people that I've been with. It's been not the end of the journey, but it's been fantastic.
0: Well, I think a very succinct overview, Augusto, and quite a lot of places for us to go, actually, with that one, because I, I do want to come on to what you're doing now. But I, I think your journey as a consultant is going to have some some fascinating insights. And I try and think, what would my listeners want me to stop on? And, and you teed me up well with, you know, you thinking you were the wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> so maybe we'll start this way around. You know, you, you've obviously worked in a lot of consulting businesses and, what were those things you were doing that actually with hindsight maybe felt right at the time but now you are where you are you know is not the I guess the best long-term approach for consulting firms what should people be thinking about in their own business if they are you know thinking they are the wolf of Wall Street at the moment
1: <laughs> as you have known you were going to go directly for the expose <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry I was just kidding nothing <laughs> shall I continue with the animal noises? <laughs>
0: As I said, I didn't know if the animal noises will make it into the shed. I think they should now. I, feel, I this think is... they
1: should. They should at some point. Uh, look, I, I've always been very involved in delivery because I'm very client focused. And no matter what role I had, I was doing all sorts of the different things, but very on the cold face of doing the doing. So because I like it, because they let me. At the point in which I was involved in finding other businesses to acquire, I kind of lost sight a little bit of what the value of the consulting business was. And I started looking into how does it fit into spreadsheets so that it bumps up the value of the share price. So if you acquire the right thing at the right time, then your investors will be very happy and then your share price can go up. So there is a little bit of that. There's a little bit of what looks good in the market instead of what is the right thing for my clients. So I did things that, I thought were the right things internally rather than externally for the team. And when I talk externally, I talk about the stakeholders and that is obviously your people and telling you how to suck eggs, your clients and your shareholders. And So when you think about those three groups in unison together, then you tend to come up with the right answer. And when you miss one of those, then you tend to be a bit more short-sighted and then do the wrong thing. Now you can make a lot of money, and hence the Wolf of Wall Street analogy, so you can make money by doing the wrong thing, but you cannot do it for very long because it just erodes value. And so what would I do differently or what I've learned is that the value of these businesses is in the long-term sustainability and repeatability of the business. And that is very rooted to the proposition as well as the people that you've got within the business. So you've got to look well into or under the covers, really, and try not to break that as you're trying to build something on top. Though no, the Romans did very well, actually. Let's
0: let's go on a different segue here with Nero destroying before building. I told you I would I would stop you if I thought it was too much of a rabbit hole and and history. Is probably... is, history is for another one. But <laughs> your point there around just because you use the phrase around that that repeatability, so is it very much around making sure if you've got a model that works that any model you say acquire in complements that? Also, I guess for listeners who maybe don't have that repeatability, because I think sometimes the challenge in consulting firms is, you know, we say yes to everyone, you know, you're a client, oh, I can do IT, I can do process, I can, you know, we are smart people and we can apply that. So I'm interested in your point around why repeatability is so important. Yeah. And well, sustainability of revenues is important and
1: profits and without repeatability, that is really, really hard. It becomes relentless. Admittedly, it's relentless regardless, but you know, there's no need to make it any worse. I think you've landed onto a good thing when you can mix your knowledge with a group of people to solve a problem that enough people have. And that's when consulting kind of excels or, or looks best. And I know there's been lots of bad press around why consultants also take the mickey. But the truth is, if you can industrialize, if you like, collective knowledge and get a really good group of people to commercially deliver that for clients, and you've got enough clients with that problem, then you're in a good place. And all of that stuff, as you can hear, leads to repeatability. So how would you do that? By learning, by bringing, by building that goes into your proposition, into your operating model, all of those nice things. So... Equally, when you're acquiring, so if you look into your acquisition strategy and everything you want to do is, you know, up your top line or your bottom line because something may come down the line that you can benefit from quickly, chances are you acquire the wrong thing or you'll integrate it in the wrong way. So it's, it's that long-term, maybe more the model repeatability, the key thing is long-term thinking, long-term views. So be strategic about what you do and then you're more likely to succeed.
0: Oh, well when, when you put it like that augusta it makes it makes perfect sense and i and we we'll, we're going to go into sort of acquisitions and, and what you do with Rivero over this podcast for sure. I think that point around you know, from your your earlier roles or or what you're doing now in that strategy piece when you're looking at a, an acquisition, let's say unless they do identically what you do, which is quite you know in a, to an extent conceptually is easy to put together, how did you or how do you balance that? repeatability of what your core business does with a a new repeatable thing because they could be complementary they could be distinct actually does that matter i'm interested to get your take on that i think like with everything you've got to start with what you want
1: the end point to be even though the end point might be different when you get there in fact you won't get there you get somewhere else but uh, it is good to have a goalpost somewhere i think with defining an acquisition strategy or a growing organic growth strategy. They call them really nice. Uh, you can charge more if you call it that, actually. So there you go. First tip of the night. Yeah,
0: thank you. Our listeners will be thanking you. First, <laughs> first piece of advice. Go, first gold piece of advice. Yeah.
1: Ten people me for everything you made from now on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what well, you've got to think is about adjacency, first of all. And it's, okay, so what do I do that my clients really benefit from and they're paying me good money for and there's enough of them. And then what else could I bring onto it that they need that makes sense with what I do? Because what you cannot do is expect that your clients are going to want to buy exotic fish from you if what you're doing is selling them wine. It's like There's no relationship between those two things and other than the fact that you can source it. There's no reason for them to trust you with exotic fish. But if you think about, okay, well, I'm selling them wine. I'm going to sell them some snacks to eat with that wine because I can actually pair the two things and it makes sense. So I develop a new department that is the wine snacky thingy. So I can, this is kind of a cue for your Christmas present, by the way. <laughs> so, but... uh you know what I mean? So think about your service and what you're providing for your clients. And then what things could you put around to make it better for your clients? And that's the adjacency that you look for in terms of an acquisition strategy. And last year, we worked with a client who did absolutely fantastically well at defining this. They put the business and the services in the middle, and then they built all the things outside that they said, my client would buy this from me if I had it. And it's important to think about that. So would their client trust you to sell them that stuff alongside what you're currently selling them? And does it make sense as a narrative altogether, which is where, you know, obviously, the clever, creative marketing people come in, which I'm sure you can tell us more about.
0: Today is not my conversation, but we'll we'll, we'll come on your podcast. and Yeah, exactly.
1: I'll say that (laughs) podcast and I'll invite you in. uh, Which is a very important thing because it needs to make sense. The narrative needs to make sense. And then at that point you start thinking, okay, well, shall I develop this one? Or shall I buy it? Or shall I, I don't know, innovate it? Or shall I partner? There's many different strategies you can follow as you expand your service proposition so as to serve
0: your client. There's two questions that that spring to mind, but I'll ask them in the order I think they flow, which is, you know, the first one, obviously people listening to this, they're consulting leaders like yourself, they're running consulting businesses. To your point on inorganic versus organic, growth, how would you determine, and if you you had this in any of the firms you work with, feel free to use an example, how would you determine where you should buy in that capability versus hiring and building that capability? Because I do think in our industry, that's actually something, you know, I had a guest on, Peter Reed from MSQ a few episodes ago. And I think in marketing services, acquisitions are much more commonplace, that kind of buy and build model. In consulting, it feels much more like organic growth is kind of the lead driver. But how would you help people think about when to use organic growth versus that inorganic? You know, do I buy a snack company or do I hire someone who can make snacks?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, it's an interesting observation. I think as and I'm going to say I'm going to only throw myself under the bus here. So none of you guys listening but me. I am a consultant, trainers, management consultant, strategy management consultant. Of course, I know best. So when you think... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's very difficult to acquire something when you know better than anybody else at everything. So that's one of the problems, really. When you walk into the room and you think you're going to be the one who knows best, then it's going to be quite difficult. And then you think, okay, well, I'll grow it organically. Mm-hmm. Joking aside, uh, there's lots of consolidation in the consulting world, and it has been more and more. I think the decision is based on many different things. I know this is a very fuzzy answer, but uh, the first thing is whether you want to take the business to. I'm not a big believer on acqui-hires, which is acquire something that is capability exclusively in consulting. And that's because the value of consulting is rooted in knowledge and IP. If it's not going to enhance your service proposition, you're probably better just finding a different route to getting lots of bots to do the work. And there's all sorts of books you can read on, on leverage and all sorts of different things. And you could probably partner also. I think when you choose to acquire, you need to acquire something that in the very long term is going to accrue value onto the equity of your own business. And what I mean by that is that as it merges and it becomes you and you become it, so whatever the combined entities become in the future, that has to be one plus one equals three. And that's not the case with every single thing that you want to develop as part of your service proposition enhancement. And so when you find, okay, so I think, and also there is a a big component of risk. But when you think, okay, you know, I don't really need that to have a valuable business. So that's not going to accrue the value of my business. Then I shall partner. And then I have, instead of setting up, for example, an offshore center in Portugal, I'll partner with someone who already has one. But it might be the right thing to do. So you just need to think about that the accrual value on the equity of your business.
0: And maybe for our listeners' benefit, just because you mentioned it there, and, and I'm just keen to dig in around, you said actually that aqua hire, kind of hiring a team who have you know, the thing you do, you wouldn't do. Almost why do you find that's a better thing to build yourselves? Why would you build that as opposed to, you know, okay, here we do process, here's another person with five, 10, 20 people who does process, let's bring them in.
1: Well... So for me, acqui-hire is when you get someone who does exactly the same thing that you or you perceive it to be and you're basically acquiring the capability so that they can deliver your proposition. And the reason is because it's fickle. It's entirely based on people wanting to deliver your proposition rather than theirs and asking them to ignore everything that they do and follow what you do. So in a way, it's, it's a high-risk approach. Unless you're really big, that is quite a risky... Typically, I mean, obviously I'm generalizing and yeah. there's cases in which this is the right thing to do. In fact, we, we've we been involved in in one that was the right thing to do because it was servicing as a massive spike in demand that wouldn't have been served otherwise. But uh, typically it's much better to look for things that are more valuable than just hoping that people are gonna stay and do what you do. And it's easy, to, it's, it's a culture thing, I think. And the culture, I I mean, maybe now is the right time to define culture or to make an animal sound. But uh, when I say culture, I don't mean people talk about these soft aspects of businesses. Culture is how people do things within a business. And that is very, very black and white, if you like. I mean, obviously, grace is the beautiful in between black and white. But uh, culture is not only how they do it, but why would they do it also, and what things they wouldn't do in the name of making a couple of quid. So it's a very, very important thing to have a clear alignment. And when you want people to kind of come into your culture, you, you're more successful when you actually expect them to bring some of theirs and enhance yours. I'm not going to go into politics here, but
0: no, no. But I, I, I understand the point, like you say, around that if you're just asking them to kind of change football teams, or, you know, put your kit on and play your your game. And I'm, I don't know football that well, so I. That's where I'll. stop. That's i Augusto. I don't know football at all. <laughs> Sports is about all I can do in metaphors, but um, yeah, animal noise. Maybe it's you know, if you're if you're expecting them to. I know woof woof and they go wow wow wow, wow. yeah you know that that feels alien (laughs) Um, that'll be completely out of context for anyone listening (laughs) we'll we'll move that on I I, you mentioned and I think you're right you know I as a former consultant as well have exactly the same feeling as you you know I knew best and I remember 26 year old Nick when he went out to start his online estate agency business knew that it would be the best success ever. It wasn't because young consultants can be <laughs> a little more arrogant than um, they think. And I say that as, as a former young consultant. Your point around, take your exotic fish and wine example, just because it's a good metaphor. How should listeners, if they are thinking about that growth strategy, how can people test if it really is something their customers would value versus something they think. Because you know, you, you said, in your metaphor, you said, oh, well, if I sell wine, snacks might be what, some, what someone wants. And you'd say, well, fish doesn't make sense. But I could say, well, no, Augusto, my buyers, they like fine wine, and people with money who like fine wine are going to want exotic fish. So I'll sell exotic fish. Yeah, How, in a business world, do you actually have you or do you advise your clients to challenge themselves to make sure that is, you know, it is the right capability? Yeah,
1: that's that's, that's a really good point. And by the way, you're making me think my strategy now again, maybe I should sell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a really, really good, question and potentially i'm not the best person to answer it but the answer is service development so how do you develop your service and what i can tell you from my experience and the only valuable things in my experience is the failures is that if you do it in the back room without your clients involved you're likely to fail so you will decide whether you sell fish or whether you sell snacks based on your client input that's what i'm saying so basically bring your service development process, um, black box, whatever you want to call it, onto your clients. And use it as the innovation box for services within the clients and then help them help you develop your service in a way that makes sense to them as well as to you commercially.
0: Bring that to life because I think it's a great point. When you've seen that work, so learning from your failures, is that speaking to your clients in terms of interviewing them saying Augusto would you like fish and we might need to go back to consulting before we lose people you know I sell process would you like operating model or is it more we're doing an operating model project and I'm going to give you a little bit of process to see if it works and kind of almost try it with you it might be both but I'm interested how you've seen that work before it's a bit
1: both But uh, the one that uh, that we implemented a long time ago that worked really nicely is effectively what I was saying earlier, which is we developed an innovation process that was an internal process to innovate internally, but we brought it to every single project. We basically, and actually we used it for the sales process. It was great. It became an absolute fantastic, self-fulfilling prophecy. But we said to one friendly client "Look, we've got this innovation process, it's all about doing things better, more efficiently, but also more effectively, and also coming up with ideas to solve problems or mitigate problems that may come up in the future. Do you mind if we do it whilst we're doing the project? We will charge you for it. And the client you will know, just bobs your uncle. <laughs> Go for it. Know yourself out. And so we developed the process on client side and we were looking at how we do things. And that is from how do we actually deliver? How do we engage with the client? How do we communicate? How do we build assets? How do we give those assets to the client and how do we keep them internally? The whole shibang. And the client loved it. We came up with all sorts of different things uh, that help mitigate risks, that help them identify issues very early on, but also help them identify new projects. So it helped us find new projects for the future. So at that point, we thought, OK, well, this is fantastic. Um Let's bring it to every single client. And that's what we did. So we took that service development process or innovation box, I think it was called. And we put it into every single project. And we told the clients, we're going to innovate within the context of your organization. And we're going to do that at our own expense. And we would run reviews and say, look, we've identified this. If our service had this attached to it, would you have bought it? Just as simple as that. Just be direct. And people look at it and say, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Ask me next time. And some people say, yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we do that. Do you mind if we bring it in? So no, bring it in. So it became also a an upsells. Tool, but it was it was just a simple concept of trying to do things better. But instead of doing them internally, we did them externally, and it worked really, really well.
0: I, I think it's a great example, and and touches on a really interesting, I think, both challenge and area that I know you're passionate in terms of that sales piece of. Sometimes, as consultants, we can build a to your point, build something internally and then take it to market and hope everyone likes it. Whereas I think your example of actually building it with the client, and I'm interested that honest conversation. I appreciate that was just a, you know, part of your story, but it was a longer conversation. But did you go to your client and say, well, actually, if we had this, would you buy it? Because I think that's quite, in consulting, sales sometimes feels a little dirty. You know, not everyone wants to be a salesman. That feels probably quite bold for some of our listeners.
1: Yeah. It's something that I've encountered multiple times. As your listeners, acute listeners may have noticed, I'm not English. (laughs) I should have been though. No, I'm not. I'm Spanish. And so it's a little bit different for us when we think about, we're a service-minded culture. And what that means is that we're actually used to the concept of serving. And I don't mean that in the sense of, uh, in a bar, though, potentially two. Uh, if you've been on holidays in Costa del Sol, you'll see that it's true. But uh, what I mean is that it's thinking about what the others want before you actually give them what it is that they want. And that is very tightly linked to sales, but in a different way of looking at it. I only learned how to expressed that in an Anglo-Saxon way when I worked in Australia and in America where the concept of sales is a little bit more open than it is in the UK. And I think it's a concept itself, it's the word. For some reason, it's, it's go back up. But what I always tell people is a consultant is someone who identifies the problem that someone has, and it has to be a real problem, has the right solution, so it's not square pegs into round holes, it's the right solution for that problem, and can find a compromise between the person who's got the problem and the person who's got the solution to fix it. And everybody needs to be happy with that compromise and the problem needs to be fixed and the problem needed to exist to set with. That is sales 101. And that's what every single consultant does, any good one. So consultants are salespeople, good salespeople, and good salespeople are consultants. It is that for some reason, the two things have been separated and in fact, It's really organization, and this is a very long topic, where when you separate those two things entirely, you're successful. I don't believe that that is going to work. You need to keep them tightly together. You can have people that have got more of a sales focus, more of a delivery focus, whatever you want. And, you know, it's it's personalities, introverties, extroverties, all of those things. But they're very, very close together. That's what we're here to do, which is solve problems, and it has to be commercially viable.
0: So that's sales. No, and I think your the sort of three things you set out there touch on what we talked about of the challenge of sometimes it's not identify problem then solution where it goes wrong is when people identify a solution and then find a problem for that <laughs> yeah. you know, solution to be be applied to and just because again I'm I'm sure others will be interested and it may be because of the economic climate we're in at the moment but. Yeah, you made the point there that this was a value add you gave to the client. It was, you know, inverted commas, free work. So it cost your firm, you know, hit margin. Yeah, The, the details matter less, but almost, I guess the decision to do that. So how did you, and if it's useful sort of share where you were in the organization and your, your team, make that conscious decision to invest that time in building the proposition in clients mm-hmm. when that would knock margin and people might think, oh, well, that's quite a, you know, why are we? spending money why aren't we just taking it home as profit how did you come to that decision as a team and I guess for anyone listening how could they start to get their team on board with it as well yeah I think what position
1: was I at the time I think the first time I did this I've done it a few times the first time I did this I did not have any power of decision in the organization eventually I did took over all the power in that place but uh, I didn't I couldn't decide but what I did I, to be honest, i love to claim this is my own idea, but I don't think it is. And I cannot recall who to give credit to. It could have been someone passing by or something I read. But uh, what I did is that I actually baked into the gross margin of a project before I presented the project to the client and or internally. So I knew I wanted to try this out because I could see that if, if we stayed the way we were doing, the proposition was going to become stale. So I I worked out what the cost was going to be of running at the client, and I basically baked it into the gross margin. I fixed the price. I took the gamble, and off I went. And so I sold it internally very easily. It's already been paid for, and I sold it to the client as this is free. <laughs> <laughs> well, some some brilliant salesmanship there, I guess. Yeah, um, um, yeah. Um- <laughs> It worked actually. Hey, I was gonna say they're not gonna find out. No, they, <laughs> they might because this is an international podcast. But uh, yeah, they, it worked for everybody. It worked out quite well for everyone.
0: Thinking of where we go next, and we are going to come on to Vivero, and I know we started to blur into MA, but we, we're going to come on to that. I just y- you mentioned earlier that you've learned more from your your failures, and I just because I think this has been a really rich seam into one of your your failures. You know, becoming that wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Are there any other failures that stand out that might be of oh interest to me. our to our listeners? <laughs> I think I mean one of the lines
1: that we lead with in Vivero is that our failures are the most important thing because we believe in using our experience for others to learn from. If I come and tell you I've been so successful and everything I've done is being actually gold, then you'll think of Midas if you knew who the he was, or you'll think that I'm full of it. Full well, of well, just,
0: just to our previous conversation, is Midas Midas in Spanish or do you have a different Midas? Midas. Ah, it's not the same as Tintin's dog then. It's not completely <laughs> different. No. no, though that says wow.
1: <laughs> it's a French dog. Well, actually it's a Belgian dog, sorry. Oops.
0: We will, I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you what a dog, what noise a dog makes in Belgium, unless you know. (laughs) Just say, Wow. Wow. Okay. So, wow, we are back to the failures. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah. So, so it's a, it's a very important thing for, for me. It's a very important thing for us. I think understanding, acknowledging, it takes a long time before you can feel proud of your scars, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm an old dog now, so I can happily Take pride on them. I don't even have to leak them anymore. It's all good. I'm good with them. And those are the most useful ones because we use them to, to help people identify potential problems down the line. I think I did countless. I mean, pride is one that I've failed for many times. And in consulting, that is a really bad one because you're with people. If you're too proud to admit you're wrong, if you're too proud to do something, then it was going to buy you down the line. And it's beaten me many, many times believing that i could take more than i could really and you know i compared myself once very famously with a plow machine i'm not sure exactly why <laughs> but <laughs> i did say in front of lots of people i'm a plow machine i'm gonna plow with it don't worry i'm no nowhere close to it i've never done anything about myself in my life and in fact my biggest pride is to surround myself with really good people that can do all the sort of things that i cannot So I've had countless, I've done things very, very badly in terms of uh, thinking. This idea, for example, well, sell it and then you can build it, ish, really. (laughs) Because uh, if you're really good at selling, you might end up with a big problem. And the whole thing with the promises that you make. So I think I really like to think that I'm a really good long-term thinker. And that's one of my skills, maybe. But uh you can push things only so far and then suddenly you start making things up really badly and think, yeah, I can foresee the future. No, you cannot. And <laughs> oh, I certainly can't. And So, yeah, there's, there's plenty of things. And there's the small detail things that I'm mentioning, but that's because the devil hides be below the detail. And so there's plenty of those little things that we've done wrong, that I've done wrong in my life through my career. And admittedly, at a high level, I've been very successful, thank you. Thanks to all the people that I've worked with and I've met, but yeah, it's he's taking many trips <laughs> onto the wrong rocks.
0: No, and I, I think it's it's good for our listeners to hear Augusto because I, th- I think sometimes in in today's world you can look at people who are successful in in whatever inverted commas you put that in and think that nothing went wrong. And I think particularly with today's social media world, you know, we everyone's life looks great in twenty second videos or you know pictures on the Instagram. You know, we we show pictures of us on holiday we don't show pictures of us working till whenever or when you've had a bad day and i think one last piece from your you know your intro because there there was lots we could cover there but i did is promise this is my we were, interest all, <laughs> well no, this is this is me picking up from your intro because okay, i think sorry. this is yeah there's there was so much in there but you you know to your point in our conversation earlier around opportunity you know you you, you made that point of well sometimes you're guilty of just putting your hand up but i wonder if there was more to, you know, to your point of you're good at reading people, you understand people, yeah. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, were there any commonalities in the opportunities you took or the, the people who you said yes to? What was it that made you think, yeah, this is the one for me, as opposed to the one you said no to?
1: Yeah, good question. Again, I just want to qualify. I, I'm not sure that I'm good at reading people, uh, but I really like people. <laughs> I'm a grumpy old bugger, but I really like people. I don't know whether people like me, but that doesn't matter. I like them. I think that's, I never really thought about it that way, Nick. And I think you're making a really good point. I do raise my hand and say, don't worry, I'll do it. And that happened the first time that someone asked, oh, I need someone to run the business. And so, oh, don't worry, I'll do it. I need someone to sell the business. Don't worry, I'll do it. With full confidence that they knew I didn't know how to do it. And if they were going to give me the chance, that we were going to make it work together. So somehow I knew that I could be, I could have the audacity of asking that I was going to be fine if they said no, and that if they said yes, we were going to have to work it out, <laughs> and it was going to be a ride, a hell of a ride. And it's it's not always worked. So one of my first, don't worry, I'll do it. Was I orchestrated together with the owner of a software business I was working with a bit of a coup. I said, oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take it over with the CEO had gone a and Well, not a wall, but he had gone AWOL. I he, cannot say the gone. rest. He had gone. He had gone. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, I uh, we had a discussion and I said, you know, and I was a nobody in this business. And I said, I'll, I'll run it. And with the board and all that stuff, and I'll run it. And he said, okay, yeah, let's go for it. He, 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 he took a shine to me and I was a hard worker. I was, not entirely stupid and he probably thought okay so maybe why not this is totally outlandish let's see if we can take over the board (laughs) so we presented the coup and everything and i failed catastrophically obviously didn't take my bid. i made friends along the way some people raised their eyebrows when i went to interview for the ceo role and i was in my early 20s and they're like what the hell who is this guy to be honest, one of the moments in which I thought I probably shouldn't get this role is when I could not understand some of the questions because the words were a little bit too convoluted. And I thought, maybe my English is not even good enough for this. <laughs> but uh, I didn't get it. We got very drunk at Lesca-go. We go uh, asked to leave the restaurant at some point. <laughs> and then I thought, well, maybe I need to learn a couple of things along the way. So it's not that it's always worked, but he was the right person to try it out with. And when I think back on it, exactly as you said, maybe there was something about all of those people that made me feel like I could fail, even if they, or, or succeed with them. But yeah, I still do it, by the way. If if an opportunity comes by and then it looks like it's something I'm going to go for, I raise my hand and say, hey, give it to me.
0: Well, and it's, it's interesting that point you mentioned there around you look for people who I guess you almost feel there's a psychological safety, I think would be what I call that. You feel you will be safe if you fail as well as if you achieve. Yeah, I think that that story, to your point, you, know, you probably weren't going to become CEO in your early 20s, but you had the confidence to ask and the trust in the person. And I, I guess, you know, for our younger listeners, there is that element, not that everyone should interview for the CEO, but more <laughs> have sometimes having that confidence to ask those questions and ask a bit to our sales conversation. The worst you'll get is a no within reason you know you do need to be mindful of what you ask but the worst you get is a no and you learn from that i got off a really good role though so it's okay well and, and and this is where i think to to your point sometimes that serendipity and opportunity are things you make yourself and i know with some of the things i've done it's when you've gone out and done something different that those opportunities come to you and it sounds like that that's very much what you found from your journey as well I think it probably is, Augusto, time to turn to, because we mentioned it a little bit around you know, the business you run now, Vivero. And I'm really keen to to dive into some of those weeds around you know, what you do in terms of M&A, because I think the space that you serve is one, you know, some people know about it, but there is a little bit of mystery around M&A in that market. And I'm sure you can, from all of the, you know, the clients you've worked with, the deals you've done, really shine a light on that. But first, do you want to share, actually, what Vivero is, does, and I also guess why you launched the firm. You know, you you made the point, you've been a consultant your whole career. Why did you go from, I guess, consultant to advisor, poacher turned gamekeeper? I'm sure there's a Spanish (laughs) equivalent of that.
1: I'm sure there is, but I don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Shows my limitations on my own mother tongue. I think, I mean, first, why? I'm trying to remember the quote in which uh, you know the, what does require of a man to ask another man why? It's always the question that should not be asked, but should be inferred into every other question. Yet you did ask it, oh, so you've I am going to attempt. Now. No, I'm going to attempt to answer it because you know why not?
0: Well, why not? Indeed,
1: yeah, but don't don't shoot the messenger. I really love consulting businesses, consulting tech services businesses. That's what I've done all my life, as I was saying earlier, even before I knew I was doing. And I really like how it feels. And I, I've always been, well, not always, but most of my career is being in the mid-market. So Can sp- you just define mid-market for us? So listeners. it's the SMEs, I think in the UK would be anything below 50 million okay. turnover. And that's most of my career. I work with businesses, we're much larger than that, but- um. Since I'm not a really good employee, then people usually realize and ask me to do something else. Mm -hmm. But I like the intensity. I like the way it feels. And I I like that exposure to clients. I like solving problems. I like spending time with people that are cleverer than me. So it's a perfect gig for me. When I finish my last gig, which is with uh, Tico we were talking about earlier, you know, we did integration and it was well, time to do something else. But the obvious thing for me is to set up another consulting business. I realized on the time that I was walking up and down the towpath in Barnes and thinking about life and everything, I realized that the bee on my body had moved slightly, had shifted sides and it had gone somewhere else. And I started worrying about well, what is it that worries me? It's important that it's something that whilst I try to have as much purpose as I can in life, really for business, it's got to be something that really intrigues me that I want to fix that I think is a problem that's got enough people have, and so on and so forth. Through my own experience, and and I'm not talking about the market in general, but my own personal experience, I felt that there was a, a gap in the market that was becoming wider and wider. It's an investment gap, but it's an investment gap of, of different dimensions of capital. And that is financial, that is advisory, that is people, that is all sorts of different dimensions of capital that come together to form a good business. And Accrue its value. I felt like the SMEs were starting to be left behind, and so people were starting to move towards slightly larger businesses because of, well, the economics of it all. So I thought this can be done better, and it can be, and it's, there is a massive opportunity. But it can be done better if you do it from a business-centric perspective, which is the key thing for me. Which is if you take a business hat on, and a long-term view of how things may unfold. I think you can come up with many options that otherwise wouldn't be considered for how do you continue to grow your business, how do you eventually exit your business and capitalize or realize the all the hard work and certainties and that you put into it. So it was another, of, well, why not? I raised my hand and said, yeah, I'll do this. And so I said, up Vivero, as a, effectively a, a, a growth advisor, but in an equity sense, and an MA advisor. So that we could help people understand what the options were to start up with, how to get to one or multiple of those options and then help them execute on them. So it's 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 a stereotypical MA advisor business, with the only difference that we focus exclusively in consulting and tech services businesses, and I know there's a couple in town that do the same thing, that we stay in the SME market. We're not going to go and chase the bigger transactions because we like what we do. We like the people that we work with, and we're doing this because we want to work with them. And importantly, we are very business-centric. And I know everybody says that, but it's, you know, this is run by me. I'm a business guy. I like my numbers. I'm a mathematician by training, but I'm a business guy. So everything we do is business-centric and very, very much so. So it was, I suppose, the musing of meandering by the river that ended up giving birth to Vivero.
0: Fantastic. Well, and I think a nice entry point for us to to dive into is some of those things you highlighted, and, and we're going to cover off a lot of them, Augusta, because I'm keen to give our listeners as much insight into you know, that point around business-focused growth, around how do you maximize, I think you said, that sort of equity value, because like you say, the our market, of consulting, there are some big names who deal with big deals, but increasingly that, I say smaller, you know, 50 million is still a lot of money, but that mid-market space and you know, that sort of lower mid-market doesn't seem as well-served in the consulting sector. And, and maybe we start there around, you, you mentioned that business-centric approach. And I don't know whether there's a deal that's a good case study of this, or if it's it's more sort of broad, I don't know how much you can talk about specific deals. But when you go into it, what are the things you're looking for? And for anyone listening, what should they be thinking about? if they are looking to have those options? Does it start with what those options are? Does everyone you work with want to get to an exit event? What are those commonalities of things that people should almost start to be auditing in their business if they're thinking about some sort of event in however many years' time?
1: I think answering those questions in some kind of random order, you don't actually have to get to an exit event for this to be valuable to you. And the reason is because Growing the value of the equity of the business makes the business more valuable for the stakeholders, as I was saying earlier. And that's potentially what this business centric view is. We look at not how just potential investor or buyer in the future will actually benefit from this business. It's the whole community along the journey. But we look at it from an investor's perspective. And so we take that mindset, we put it into the business, kind of overlay it, if you like, over the business plan if there is such a thing. And then we start saying, okay, well, if you do this at this point, you benefit throughout the whole journey. And then you get to a point in which your business in itself is more valuable. And you might decide to do an EOT, an employee ownership trust. And then that means that your employees will benefit because it's a more valuable business. Or you might decide to sell it to one of the again acquires a trade uh, buyer. And then you'll benefit, they'll benefit because it's a more valuable asset. Or you might decide to go with an investor and an PE, for example, and they'll benefit and you'll benefit because it's more valuable. So no matter how you look at it, and even if you never, ever exit this business and it continues at infinitum, which is potentially unlikely, but anyway, let's imagine this will continue to accrue in value. And now th- there is another thing also, which is we are obsessed as a culture generation, I'm not sure, as a group of people with constant growth. And constant growth is economically and mathematically impossible. So value growth is not. And that's very important. So you've you got to dissociate the concept of continuously growing your business and continuously growing the value of your business. So you can accrue the value of your business as you're growing by doing things that are investing into it in times of crisis. And both your top and bottom line may suffer, but it's still the business is more valuable. For it.
0: That's a fascinating one because it, it sounds slightly counterintuitive, you know, the, the point of, I can only grow my top line of cinema, but I can grow my equity value, you know, more so. Can, can you bring that to life? You know, what, what does that, yeah, so, what could that look like?
1: <clears throat> so remember, I'm talking about long-term thinking here. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: so for example, in
1: a time of crisis in which you know that the business is going to suffer, and I, I've got a very good example of some really brave business owners who did this during the pandemic. and. Unfortunately, it's it's confidential, but I'll I'll give give you the detail of what I did. And it's exactly what I mean, which is they were running a consulting business, pure people based, whilst they were developing some technology alongside to us to create a technology-enabled service. And through the pandemic, it became clear that the business was not tenable in that way. And they they pivoted the whole business. They looked into, okay, so what do we want to have at the end of this? They They were initially running towards more swapping between consulting to product. But it was: What do the clients want? What do they need? How is the world going to be different? How are my people and my services? And they used the pandemic period to reshape the business, to reorganize themselves, to change the business and the operating model, to become a tech-enabled tech service business. Is is absolutely flown since? And the thing is, all the assets, all the things that make it a valuable business, were put in place, not necessarily developed at the During the pandemic, there were some before and some after, but all of them were put in place during a time of absolute crazy crisis at the cost of investment. So the whole bottom line went into that. And now they're taking off. They're extremely valuable. We are having discussions with potential uh, investors right now. They're valuing them really high and they're worth that and more because of what they managed to do. So they were very brave. They took a gamble, so to speak, because they basically jumped and then decided that after discussions with clients, that was was going to be the right thing to do, and they were brave enough to do it and there you go they they managed to grow the value of their business drastically whilst the business was suffering on a financial performance perspective
0: I mean it's a fascinating example and I think a because it, it shows your point b we're, we're sort of approaching another you know whether you say we're in recession or not there you know, another economic event let's say I guess th- there's an interesting challenge maybe for some, you know, we talked earlier about that repeatability. You know, if you've got a a really good repeatable people-based business, doing what your client there did can probably feel quite disconcerting. If, you know, you're almost, you've got this thing that's doing great. You're kind of throwing that out. Your clients obviously didn't just do this on a whim, maybe to help our listeners. and, And it might be what we talked about earlier, Augusto, how did your client get themselves comfortable that this was the right direction? You know, because it was a punt, but I'm sure they didn't just go to the casino and put it all on black, let's (laughs) say. (laughs) No,
1: it was an evolution. I think it's more than a revolution and evolutions tend to work better than revolutions, despite what the French may think about what happened in France. So the, the evolution, and to be honest, every revolution is an evolution too. And when you start looking into the causality of everything that happened before, oh, there you go, I got a bit metaphysical, didn't I? No animal noises, though. So it was an evolution. They were thinking about it. But I think the answer really is failure. So, and the the answer is failure because they had tried and they had tried to evolve the business in some level of isolation from the client desires because something that they were developing was very interesting. And that failed. And it made them have to think. And on top of it, a very solid, very good consulting business was suffering because the pandemic kind of loom on them. So they were forced against the wall to be quick on their feet and come up with something. And that's what is most impressive about it, which is under pressure, the ability to come up with something that is an evolution of what you've got, that is the result of conversations that you're currently having and you've had for many, many years an understanding, deep understanding of the market you're operating and what's coming down the line that's going to affect your clients and then evolve your service and your technology to fit that like a globe. It's a fantastic outcome. But I think that those are the two key things. First of all, evolve. So evolve everything you've got Just continuously evolve. Nothing is ever, everything is constantly evolving. Nothing is ever stopping and, you know, it's finalized. And and also learn from your mistakes and from others, by the way.
0: No, it's it's a good point. And, and interesting, it comes back to the example you gave of your own journey with that kind of client feedback piece. And, mm. and I think it comes through loud and clear of, listen and it sounds obvious when we say it here but it's much harder in practice of listen to what your clients want their problems where they're going and and solve them and it sounds like your clients in this case that that's what they did they evolved their offering around wherever they worked
1: mm. yeah absolutely there was a, a director of surgical so work with and he always said confirm and clarify he used to think okay, oh, we understand he was spot on confirm and clarify so talk to your clients once they tell you something confirm and clarify so, did you say this? Is this is what you said. This is what I understood. this is what I understood. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. Are we cool? Uh, it's a simple thing, as well as say thank you to everybody. But uh, please, but uh, it's simple things, but they make a huge difference. So, talk to your clients, but confirm you understood them, because I think you were making this point earlier that often we think we've got the solution before we even check whether there is a problem. <laughs> yeah. So, and then next thing is that I'm going to go and ask. Did you just tell me that I need to go to Mallorca on a cycling trip? Is that what you that's exactly what I heard? I'm not sure what you were talking about. And then that's when my wife looks at me and says, mm, okay. <laughs> we're not talking the
0: same language. I should have confirmed and clarified. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think the the, the flip side, and, and you will have seen this as as well. So I'm interested if there's any almost pitfalls and, and if it's just people who don't do what you've just described, it'll be a short answer. But from all of the firms that you've seen in the market and, and you know worked with are there common mistakes you know, when people try and approach this equity value growth? Are there any common mistakes that you see you know, when people come to you and say, oh, we've tried this and that didn't work? Are there things that you're seeing time and again or have seen time and again that our listeners can almost watch out for if they're looking at how do I grow my equity value?
1: Yeah, I think let's see where this goes. Maybe unrelated. I think one very big mistake that we've seen often is that people prepare their businesses for investment or sale. What I mean by that, and I was doing the inverted come up with my little hands and the, the little ducks, but what I mean by that is very important to be prepared and to plan, very, very important. But if you're going to do something that you don't do and pretend that you do, that's going to fail catastrophically. So, for example, we've seen people that come and says, oh, we've got an account management plan that we've just put together for this process that's not going to work if you don't do account management or if you do it in a different way then that's what you've got to go with or change it and then go through the process so I think in relation to creating value and as well as to potentially going through a process of raising investment or selling your business, the things that you do, you've got to do them. You cannot just, for example, create a template of how account management should be done and put it into a drawer and expect that that is going to be helpful to you in any form or shape. That is just not going to work. So that we see often. And account management is a typical one, but there's countless, countless of them. (laughs) Uh, The things that people say, ah, ah, we're doing fine. We don't need that. Maybe the investors want it, but let's just, create a template so that's not accruing value or creating value that's just basically pretty created the pretense that you do
0: i'm going to ask you about that kind of just because you made the point around not not thinking too much about that preparation or the the kind of planning for sale piece so i want to come back to that but just one thought on as well the your, the point around kind of revenue value versus equity value is there anything again thinking of our listeners who may be looking at you know acquisitions, acquihires, or or growing teams, are there any obvious areas that may grow revenue, but may not actually have a material impact on equity?
1: Hmm. That's a very interesting question. So I think the question really needs to start with, what's the value of the business? So how does that value actually get translated into some numbers? So there is four main elements that affect the value of a business. So one of them is going to be Obviously, your performance, so your revenue and your and your net margins, and this this remember the consulting businesses are cash productive. Now everybody expects them to be. There's going to be points in which you invest in some of that cash to continue to grow, develop, and so on and so forth. But uh, the expectation is that this is a cash-productive business. It's not a, an asset-heavy business. It's asset-light, and therefore it's cash-productive. And that's important because that is a very big expectation from potential buyers and, and acquirers. If it's not the case, then you've got to have a very good reason for it not to be. But the performance of your business, then the risk around that performance is the other component. So how likely are you going to to continue to grow and perform the way that you say that you are performing and you will be performing. So that's using the past to try to predict the future, but uh, we all do it when we forecast on a yearly basis. Uh, so those two components are directly under your control, if you like. Of course, anything can happen, but uh, those are the ones that you think about when you're running the business. Then the next one is the market. So what's happening in the world, what's happening in your specific market, and and what happens to businesses like yours that operate into that market as well as what happens to the clients. What I mean by that is that if you're in a growth sector with not that many businesses servicing that sector, but you're in a great place. And if you are in a growth economy, then you're in a great place. If you are in a economy that's suffering, that's going through a crisis of some sort, but you're providing necessity services, you could be in a really good place too. So all of those things, which are macroeconomic factors, if you like, they affect the value of your business because they've got an influence on the value of everything. And the last one, and potentially the most important one to the point of the revenue, is this strategic alignment with the buyer. As we say to people, I think everybody says this really, and it's true, you're only worth as much as someone wants to pay for you. And that's the same thing for everything. Why is an iPhone worth what it is? Well, because those people want to pay however much they pay for their iPhones. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't be. And will it go up in price? Yeah. If more people want to pay more money for the iPhones, it will go up in price. And that's I know that it's simplifying market dynamics, but that's exactly it. And so one of the key things that's going to drive the value of your business, of the equity of your business through a transaction, is going to be the strategic fit with the investor or with the buyer. And the investors, the PE investors, also look for a strategic fits. It's just a slightly different angle than, than the trade buyers. And so you could have a business in which you've created loads of growth on the top line, for example, in revenue through staff augmentation. Let's say that you do digital transformation, which thank you to the pandemic, I don't have to define anymore. Everybody knows what it is. So, But it, someone comes to you and says, oh, I've got a program of work here, but I don't want you to deliver your services. I want you to give me... Twenty people for one year to do PMO work, and then you give them twenty people. You think, "Oh, pops, your uncle now. My revenue's gone through the roof. I'm gonna go and sell my business because I'm on an up and up and up and up and up, and it's gonna be great." And what the investors are gonna say is, "I like A, like B, I like C, but D there—that's a staff augmentation. That's not what you do, is it? And it's it's not terribly valuable either, is it? And the margins look low, and you're gonna be like nobody's top line. You need to value the top line, and they're gonna say no." I don't, because they're wiser than they used to be, I'm sure, and also because everybody knows it's no you know you're being opportunistic. So I've come up with the own the calf, but that's a good example, and I've actually suffered from that myself. <laughs> so there you go.
0: Uh, and and just because you you teed us up in your own example, was it similar to that? The kind of that quarter or that part of the business wasn't you know, was was the low value or that kind of less strategic work? What was what was your example?
1: Yeah, so exactly like that. So we we had a digital transformation business that was really good and building and getting better and more valuable by the moment, and we had quite a bit of staff augmentation work that was alongside it. That was obviously pumping up our top line. Feeding up a bottom line, but not totally strategic or valuable to any potential buyer
0: interesting there's a question a little bit the other way, but I'm sure again it it, it may stray into that kind of helping people think and maybe an area that sometimes people make mistakes is you know those four characteristics you mentioned, one of them being sort of market and that strategic alignment. I suspect that makes some people, if you're kind of minded for a sale, look at well what are the hot markets at the moment and you know, try and build, almost try and catch a wave. So, you know, like I said, digital transformation became very sexy because of the pandemic. Data was the other one, a few, you know, still is, but a few years ago that appeared out of nowhere. This may come back to what you said earlier around think of complementary services first, but do you ever see firms make the mistake where they they almost try and jump on the, the bandwagon with a view to not mislead the market, but, you know, catch that market. So I do digital transformation and now I do data as well. Is, is that something you ever see firms do? And, and I guess if so, how can people watch out for not making that a mistake in their journey?
1: Yes, we do see firms doing that, but both successfully and unsuccessfully. And I think it's, there is nothing wrong with identifying an opportunity in the market. And I usually tell people, great, you found an opportunity. Now have you got access to it? Can you access it? Can you reach it? Can you touch it? Can you win the work? Is there a reason for someone to give you the work there? So, but absolutely nothing wrong with understanding your market and how it fluctuates and moves and, and goes. And if you see something that is tangential, then there's nothing wrong with you exploring that. But you've got to have a very good reason to invest your time and your money in there and to hope that other people are going to invest the time and the money in it too. So, if you've got a good reason, so for example, the one that you've given with data. So I, I've i worked and I've had businesses in data and it's absolutely fantastic how it's it's always been in vogue and then mm-hmm. every time we think that it's going to continue to be and so on and so forth. But it is a very complementary subject, if you like. Maybe subject is not the right word, but it's a very a discipline. It's a very complementary discipline to consulting, to management consulting. So it's one of the best ways to merge techies and consultants, and there's a couple of businesses that have done it very successfully. And when they overlay each other, they complement each other. And if you do it very well, then the spectrum of services you can deliver for the client is massive. It grows exponentially. If you try to do it and you've got no understanding of how it's done or no IP of how it's done, then you are likely going to be successful. So you just got to, you know, be mindful of how you approach it. But there is nothing wrong with being, yeah, trying to stay ahead of a market and you know see a wave.
0: No, not, not so at it, all. And, and I, I think you may have explained it there, but to your point, just to confirm and clarify, <laughs> the, is that the difference where you have seen this type of model work versus where you've seen it fail? Is it, to your point, it's the, the understanding of how those pieces overlay and integrate that success? Whereas if someone says, oh, I hear data's hot, so we're going to start a data practice, that is where more often than not you see it yeah, fail. Yeah, spot on
1: spot on. So it's it's the considerate approach Mm. versus the opportunistic one.
0: So I want to come back to, and I said I would, but if I caught what you said correctly, you you highlighted that people shouldn't necessarily think about selling or preparing for sale in that traditional sense. I think, you know, you you highlighted it's best to grow your business and that traditional prepare for sale isn't always the best case. I'm kind of keen to ask, (laughs) Why and almost what does Vivero and, and you advise firms to do instead? You know how should a, a mid market firm listening to this who says, "Well, I, Augusto, I want to sell in three years." Take you, know, you can tell me if that's right or not. What should they be doing? That maybe the common advice is telling them to do something else. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what the common advisors will tell them, but I can tell you what we tell them when they come to
1: us. And hopefully ours is valuable enough so they don't have to go to the common advisor. <laughs> So what we believe in is important. We believe that growing a good business that is valuable to the stakeholders, as I was saying earlier, is the aim, is what you've got to be doing. And the multiples will chase you. Now, the alternative is you building a business that is chasing the multiples. And that is a little bit harder because the multiples are fickle.
0: For our listeners who maybe aren't as experienced with them, can I'm you sorry. just explain what that means? Because I love the phrasing, but what that means and why that distinction is so important. Yeah, so most
1: businesses, well, all businesses in our space value that has a multiple of other EBITDA revenue, sometimes run rate two. So some financial measure. So your revenue or your EBITDA or your run rate, and then you multiply by something five, six, three, ten, hundred times, maybe hundred times. That'd be great yeah. So and that multiple is a signal of the quality of the business in their view. And all of those factors that I talked about earlier, so the key ones that are a little bit elusive to you, those are the ones that feed into the multiple. So how predictable, how sustainable, how the market is operating and how synergetic you are to the buyer or the investor, that will all influence whether a multiple is four or 10. So that multiple is the result of building a high quality business that is low risk and as predictable as possible in a growth market When you found yourself having the discussion with the right potential investor or buyer, that multiple will grow. So our view is that don't think about the multiple. Don't worry about that staff because that's what we've got to worry about. We can help you understand what's going on in the market from an investment perspective, what people are chasing, what people are valuing more or less because it actually moves. Focus on building a business that is valuable to your stakeholders and will help you find the right timing when the multiples are chasing you, not the other way around. And so, of course, prepare for sale, very importantly, when you've got to go through a process, but don't pretend to prepare for sale. And one of the key things that we do is that we will help the businesses understand when is the right time to do what, so as to help them accrue value along the journey. And so we use effectively a due diligence in reverse, if you like, or a best practice of all of the different characteristics of the businesses that we work with. We say, okay, we, you know, if you're Around about now, you should be thinking about developing a, a more mature marketing function or you should start thinking about where your sales come from or the client concentration or, you know, how your finances are managed or how you interact with the market in terms of your proposition or your narrative as a business. All of those things that come at different times, they can be built into your plans to start developing so that you can benefit from what they do to your business in a positive way along the journey way before you think oh, you're ready to sell. And then by the time you've got to, you think, oh, well, I'd love to go through a transaction, then you're more than ready. And so the readiness period, if you like, is a lot shorter, hopefully.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, I really like that frame around if you build the good business, almost the timing will find you. Mm. And you've done a number of deals um, with Vivero previously. How often does that timing align with people's goals, I guess? Because someone listening might think, oh, actually, Augusto, great. I I can't wait 20 years until the next time this is sexy. Do you find more often than not that if you take that approach, it does let people hit the timeframes they want, be that two, three, five years?
1: Yeah, potentially. The the most common question I ask people when they when we start working together, when we exploring working together is what do they want? And I immediately, and it's an interesting one, last night I was on a call at like 8.30 in the evening with someone in America, I'm having a big discussion in the middle of a transaction, beautiful business, great investors, all of this stuff. And then the CEO says to me, I think I'm starting to learn what I want. <laughs> it's It's actually very interesting. It's true, it's very difficult to know what you want. And we've been working with them for a little while now, and they they know as well, it's very, very hard to know what you want. So start by what do you not want is probably the best. And then what do you aspire to? And then eventually you slowly through the process, you'll get to what you want. But those goals that you refer to, these are really, really important to have in your mind. So what do I want to achieve with this? And the reason why we ask people is because, you know, am I ready to sell? Well, it depends on what you want to achieve. If you come to me with a business that is doing a million EBITDA, nice business, you know, going well, mm. and you say, oh, I want 20 million for it, you better have a very good reason for that business to be worth 20 million. And, mm. and we'll have a discussion about it. But if that's what you want to achieve, mm. that's potentially not going to happen next year, is it? Now, if, if you go a business and you say, look, I want to build value in it and I'm going to get to 20 million enterprise valuation." So, okay, we can have a discussion and see how we get there, how you get there, how we help you. And it'll be an interaction of on and off. Obviously, we don't want to become a burden to the business. But uh, the the important thing of understanding or start questioning yourself, what do I want to achieve here? How do I want that to happen? It's, It's a very important one. So exit planning is absolutely essential very early on. And there is another benefit to it, which is aligning of shareholders. And that is a very common problem we find, which is shareholders get misaligned along the journey. And then things happen, things go astray. So it's very important to talk to your shareholders, to your partners, uh, shareholding partners, and then discuss, well, what do you want to do with this? And you don't have to want the same thing, by the way. It's not about being on the same journey, individual journey, but it's about understanding each other so that then we can say, okay, Nick, I can help you get there if you help me get to where I want to get to. And that understanding really makes a huge difference. And exit planning forces your hand. So I would encourage everyone, whether you exit or not, whether you know how to exit or not, it doesn't matter. We can help you understand what the options may be in the future. But to do exit planning, soul searching, why am I doing this? Because it's relentless. Consulting is a very hard business. I love it. But uh, it's, you know, it's not, you don't lie about it and hopefully we just to be sold on eBay. It's just good to be there every day, don't you? That that'll Sorry. be our
0: next business, Augusta. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the eBay widgets business is, is yeah. gonna be our next one. It's bottom. coming, it's coming with them. what was it, the exotic fish? The exotic we, well, after this <laughs> we're gonna wine. have a whole chat about the exotic fish and yeah you know, the, <laughs> the the I'm sure there's a book about animal noises, you know. I I think We're gonna get it all. Oh uh, we we are Augusto. There's there's a whole podcast in you know the businesses we're gonna start. I'm gonna bring us back to this. And I I I guess staying on the MA track and, and again just thinking about our listeners who, you know, some people may have this as an aspiration, but may, may never have been through that journey. And I'd be interested in your view on sort of the common misconceptions. You know, when you're speaking to clients, prospective clients, what are some of those common misconceptions people have about that M&A process? And, you know, almost what should they be thinking about instead? So
1: one is the type of buyers and the options that they have. So there's many more options that people typically are aware of. And to be honest, you know, having been in the coalface of running these businesses, you've got enough stuff to worry. So just to think, you know, I don't know how debt or PE works. I've got no idea. I don't care. I you know, just keep on running. So one of them is that. So lots of misconceptions around what the options available are and options for what? Well, options for what you want to achieve. So it goes back to what are your objectives? But, uh, you know, from debt to private equity, to the bias to anything in between. Um then there is lots of misconceptions around investors. So lots of people fear the money men. First of all, they're not men, all of them anymore, which is actually quite good. So a little bit more diversity starting to build in there and hopefully more and more will come in. But uh, people usually think that they're just gonna be driving you with a whip and, and that's not the case anymore. So, so PE in particular has become a lot more sophisticated, a lot more knowledgeable in our space and a lot more keen to invest into the right things. And there's lots of really interesting places, really interesting investors in the UK, across Europe, America. So there's lots of misconceptions around those. And on the process itself, there is a big misconception around what the process is and how it runs. And to be honest, it's a little bit of... As so I was saying to someone recently, it's, it's project management on asteroids, but there's loads of stuff that you've got to be handling and managing and running. Uh, I think it's very important to think about the process itself with the mindset of what's happening on day one when the process finished. And again, that's another little thing that we put lots of emphasis on, but we tell people our success doesn't end when we successfully finish the transaction and you make your money or do whatever it is. It's on day one being successful. So what happens the day after? Do you get up and you go to work and you really enjoy it? So you that-
0: T- Tell me more about that, because I think to your point, especially with the world of Silicon Valley, you know, people hear about so-and-so exited for X million or, or whatever money, and you almost think that is M&A. So I'm fascinated to your point. You know, we, some people know about, have heard of earnouts and and various mechanisms, but why is that what happens on day one and beyond so important? Yeah,
1: because it's... A, it's so first of all, I'm, a, I'm on the assumption, I don't know what that means to some people, but I mean the presumption Maybe that you actually love the business that you built and therefore you feel you care for it and the people involved and that is the clients as well as your staff. And on day one, you want that to continue to be the case. But more importantly, you want the, the transaction to have enhanced that business. Not just the way for you to make the couple of pounds that you deserve because you work really hard, but also the way in which all of those people and your clients and the buyer going to be better served. And I'm going to use buyers, investor and buyer. And that could be, you know, someone that is a a PE, for example, or or a strategic buyer. But those buyers need to be served for it so that on day one, everybody wants to make this work. Because a post-merger integration is a very, very difficult period. And you've got to plan it, you've got to think about it, but also you've got to be really keen to make it work. So anything that you do before sets you up to make that happen. And that is how you negotiate the deal, the spirit you get into, how you've communicated through the deal, how you've prepared your business, and also the reasons why you actually made that deal happen in the first place. So all of that stuff needs to be thought through, and we are big advocates for that to be a central part of the process itself. And interestingly enough, we found our processes are a little bit shorter than typical processes. And touch wood so far, all of them successful, not only through the completion, but also on day one. And it's because we've been thinking about that. So was this the right thing to do for you? Would your business be better off if you went through this? Are your clients going to be better served? And would they think, oh, this is great. So you're together now.
0: Yeah. Does that ever create a challenge? And and maybe this is sort of your approach and and the way you advise people sort of solves it. But I imagine there's an innate challenge. Let's say you have two offers on the table. Kind of one is bigger, but to your point may serve your customers. I don't want to say less well, but maybe not as well. And I'd just be interested how, you know, for the deals that you've worked on, if any examples stand out, kind of how maybe your clients thought of it and how our listeners should think about it. Because again, your point is is really powerful of you want something that's best for the business. I suspect someone listening who's grown a consulting firm, you know, to your point, it's harder than selling exotic fish on eBay. Maybe maybe it's not. (laughs) That's maybe different, but they've put a lot of work in. They want their financial return as well. How do you advise people to balance what could be those competing priorities? You know, if you have two offers where one's a better fit, but less financially.
1: Let's say you get to an offer. Okay. So the offer is going to take lots of things into account and the structure is a very important one. So you're going to have an amount and that amount is going to be distributed to you in different ways. And what happens in terms of the, the, the tie-ins, the, the golden handcuffs and all of these things that people usually talk about. I think mostly they're pejorative metaphors because people see them as negative things. That, is the wrong outcome in my view you need to look for something that feels positive you may eventually leave it and i've left the businesses that i eventually sold into because you know the time is right but uh you've got to enter into it thinking this is going to we are going to be better off for it i mean least no you know there's the panacea but you you aim for the best and then you see you know if you've got to compromise you'll compromise along the way as most consulting businesses and I uh, and there is occasions in which this is different, but most consulting businesses are going to have an earn out of some sort. And the SMEs that we work with, oh, I mean, it's very rare that they'll say, oh, well, you don't have to stay here and do anything. You can go on day one. And if they say that, it's probably going to come at a price. And so we assess the offers that our clients get in the merit, not only of the financial Presentation, but also on the structuring. Um, because it's very important to make sure that our clients can get the money that gets presented. Um, we've seen offers that were pretty unreal. And you thought, yeah, this is never going to happen.
0: And just for for our listeners, well, mine as well, actually, what what makes them unrealistic? So,
1: for example, when they say, say, okay, well, I'm going to give you 30 million for that, for example, just chucking numbers out there. But I'm going to give you 10 million day one and 20 million thereafter, but you've got to do this and this needs to happen. Nobody can leave. I don't know. They're tied to things that pretty clearly are not going to happen. People get emotionally attached to the letters, that they receive and it's very, very difficult to assess the validity. And also because most of these, uh, structural points are buried under legalese. That's where you've got to, you've got to get your advices you know, to show the worth by looking at the thing and saying, hmm, I'm not sure. But uh, I mean, on the positive side, we've managed to work things out that were a lot better, like uncapped earnouts, for example, when there is a a possibility to actually do much better. And if you see that coming, instead of delaying the deal until that comes, well, benefit from it thereafter. You know, make sure that you can actually make some more money through the uh, earnout process than the one that you're capping yourself into. So there's all sorts of ways to make this also positive. It doesn't have to be necessarily negative. But it's important. I think the key point is that you need to assess the offer in in its entirety, the structuring as well as the financial outcome and how you're going to achieve that. And also it's important for us because, you know, we get paid to make sure that they get that. So I won't make sure that they get what they say they're going to get.
0: No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and I think to your point, if there are ways to, I guess, make the deal better for both parties, that it's not all about agreeing an upfront amount and, and sticking to that. Your point on un- uncapped earnouts you know, would be would be a good example. Eh? I guess that there's an interesting question in there. And because and you mentioned in your previous career, you've done sort of buying as well. And I, I suspect, I know you've sort of Am I right you do some buy sides at the moment with Vivero or is it mainly sell sides? Yeah, it's,
1: it's mainly sell sides, but we do buy side too.
0: So I, I guess the, the question stands of when thinking, you know, if you're the acquiring firm, how, how do you structure that deal so it works for both parties? Because someone here listening might think, well, it's, it's great if, I'm, if you're a buyer, you're getting uncapped earnings. But if I'm a, sorry, if you're a seller, but if I'm a buyer, I, I want to cap your earnings so I get some upside. Yeah. You know, how do you think about that as a buyer to make that almost win-win deal?
1: Yeah. It's interesting, actually, the dynamics of we we're in the middle of one of those actually right now, and the dynamics are very they're very different from the buy side. I think what someone put very succinctly, one of my team, is that the important thing to think about is accrual of value. So, if I buy your business, Nick, how if I'm worth 10 million right now and I buy your business, how much more value am I adding to my business in terms of that equity value discussion we were having earlier? If I am suddenly adding a new service that is strategic for my market, that is potentially quite a lot. If I'm adding a bunch of people to deliver my services, well, that's not as much. So you've got to think about it from that perspective because you want to be fair in terms of how you value that business. You'll use a multiplier, which is in reference to your own multiplier. So for example, if my business is much larger, more successful than you are showing off (laughs) here, than yours, and we we know lots more noises <laughs> than you do. Then let's say, for example, that i apply yes, six times to my EBITDA, and I said, look, you're a bit subscale, so I'll apply four times to your EBITDA. So there's gonna be some stuff that can allow for a comparison for people to be able to understand why you value me like this and like that. And more importantly, you need to have a structuring that you can offer to that business that you are bringing in that lowers the risk for you. So as a buyer, you want to lower the risk of this failing. So one of the ways to lower the risk is defer as much or link it to the success of the two businesses coming together as much as possible. And that's in the market. That is actually very possible. There's some people doing roll-ups very successfully using paper swaps, for example. Can you define roll-up and paper swap? I was just sorry. (laughs) I get get excited. I know if I go. So a roll-up is when effectively a buy size. So when I've got a business and I want to buy all the businesses that I I bring into my service or adjacent, as we've been been discussing earlier. And so I roll them all up into a group business. And that could be, for example, let's say that I want to put lots of businesses in the data data space together, and then I buy an analytics, uh, data science, and engineering, and I I mesh them up and say, okay, now I've got the full gamut. So that's that's a roll up. A paper swap is when I actually have got money or for whichever reason, I don't want to use my money. And then what I'm going to use is the equity of the group business. So if I take your business, Nick, and my business and I put them together, they're going to be worth so much. You get 10% of that. I get 90% of that. And off we go. You're nodding, so I suggest yeah, no, yes, off we go, <laughs> perfect. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's a paper swap. And these people doing it very, very successfully. And creating a much more valuable asset with a group of businesses.
0: And I'm just intrigued there around what would incentivize, you know, for our listeners thinking about it. You know, if, if you came to me, like you say, Augusto, I went, well, Nick, I want to buy your business, but I'm just going to give you shares in mine. I think you mentioned earlier around, you know, we, we're consultants. We all know best. For anyone thinking of, you know, doing a roll-up themselves or, or acquiring, what incentivizes a seller to be part of that? You know, because you're in effect, I guess, risking. You know, I'm saying, Augusto, I trust you. You know, let's say my business is. Five million, yours is 50 million. I'm saying, I trust that your business is going to still be there. Do you see what I mean? What would make someone actually, what makes people want to do that? And how can anyone listening almost pitch that to prospective clients they might want to work with, or sorry, businesses they might want to acquire? Acquire. Yeah. I I think with with the subscale business, one of the
1: key things is the different stages of growth. And there is a point in which you've got to start investing into infrastructure and so on and so forth. And you lose a bit of that contact with the client being the call phase and, and delivering, selling, all of those things that typically consultants enjoy. So they don't call it selling, delivering. So there's a really good point to think about, would I be better off as part of something larger? And I can focus on what I do best, and then they can focus on helping me provide the platform to scale and grow. So building a platform to scale and grow is, is no little feat. So, you know, it's good argument. And to be honest, it's a very successful one. The other one is unity makes the force. So, you know, when you can prove to someone that one plus one equals three, then, you know, if you can prove it, why not? And this works best when you've got an existing relationship, when you partner with someone and then you're delivering services side by side. And let's say, for example, someone is doing testing and then you're doing ERP implementations and and you can see a way to bring that without jeopardizing the independence of the two businesses and then offering it to the client. And you know each other, you know how we work, it looks good, you know, you get along. It's, it's a culture that is not similar but complementary. Then, you know, why not exploring a further partnership that might get you to be one? And that typically works very, very well also in terms of acquisitions.
0: Those things, they're usually
1: on your doorstep. Usually you don't know, you don't realize, oh, look, I should I should be buying this.
0: And I think some great points there. So one interesting point, because I think we've covered a lot of ground on on sort of successful m I guess. They, there's an obvious question around, we've talked a lot about the deals that have worked out and, and deals that work out. Are there any common reasons where deals don't work out? You know, when you think either of ones that you've been involved in or you've seen in the market, what are the reasons that that deal doesn't go through? And what can anyone listening almost be thinking about either during the sales process or in advance to kind of mitigate those risks? In my
1: experience, this, there is one that is a cliche everybody says, but it's true, which is time kills deals. In fact,
0: time kills everything.
1: <laughs> but uh, we're going to let it lie there. That sounds much more honest. <laughs> yes, as you have used a different voice. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Time does kill deals, and and it's an interesting one, and we've seen it happen. It's it's happened to me when I was a client, and uh, basically what it means is that if things drag along, they don't continuously move towards the right direction, and of course things can meander, but if they don't move and they don't continuously progress, people lose interest, and a a process for investment or selling a business is an onerous process. It's very, very hard, and it's very distracting. And that's the last point which is interlinked to what I'm gonna say next, but is distractions are really, really bad for businesses. You want to be focused, you want to be on it all the time, 100%. The other one that is really bad is surprises. And I know what they say, nobody likes surprises. (laughs) Nobody likes surprises, no matter if it's a birthday party or not. Nobody likes them. And that's why the time dragging along, creating distractions, create surprises, because suddenly things start going in a way in which you—you, you, it's not that you cannot predict that sound a bit like a control freak, but uh, you don't want to have something that you entirely have happening in the middle of a deal. And that be, for example, if you say that the business is going to perform in a certain way, through the duration of that transaction, you're going to be asked, how are you doing? You want to answer, we're according to plan or we're ahead of plan. You don't want to say, well, things will be better tomorrow because that is, that's creating sending alarm bells. So no surprises. Another thing with no surprises, which is very tightly linked to potentially how I see everything, but is you want to be open and honest. You need to know when to say what and how, but you, you don't want to hide things and you certainly don't want to dress them up in a way in which they start looking a little bit different to the reality uh, it's because they, people are going to find out eventually. If not eventually on day one, things are going to be worse if it's on day one. So, yeah, no surprises of any kind. If there is skeletons in the closet, dust them off, take them out, talk to your advisors and make sure that you present them in the right way and
0: they'll they'll be nice, friendly skeletons. No, it's some really good advice. And and the plan piece is interesting. I I hadn't thought of that, but I guess almost unlike a house purchase, the business continues to live. So, you know, house, you you go and see it and you can be kind of 90% sure it looks the same when you, during the conveyancing. But I think to your point that making sure your business carries on and, and is showing that, good growth journey and, and i imagine in there there's a there's an art as well of setting that plan so it shows growth but isn't you know, you're not setting your firm up for a surprise so well, we're going to double in the next three months and actually you don't that feels like quite a delicate balance to strike but it is interesting and i guess to that time point how can people strike that balance of moving a deal forwards but i guess also not signaling that des- you know desperation because if you know you're selling something you want to Look cool, and you know, almost like you don't want it. How, how do you do that in this context? Or actually, is that wrong? You know, do you go into it with a view of look, we want to make this deal work, we need to make it move quickly.
1: I think there is nothing wrong with taking that that latter approach, and everybody knows buyers, investors, advisors, everybody knows if it meanders, it will die. So there is nothing wrong with saying, look, we're going to get into this, but if we're going to get into it, let's make it happen or let's find quickly out that it's not going to work and then we just back out all of us and then don't waste time or money. So there is no danger in sounding desperate, as you say, by saying that you want things to be speedy if you like on the process side and everybody will want exactly the same thing. What I think is interesting to think about is when when is the right time to sell? And that, that goes back to what I was saying earlier in terms of the market and the value of your business and the potential strategic alignment, but your readiness. Are you ready to go through a transaction? It's a very important one. And that is a difficult one to assess yourself. So you usually get help to to make sure that you can go through a transaction, that you're ready to present all the stuff that you need to present so as to not kill the deal through time or not show any surprises. And I know it's a little bit of a if a, I'm going back again now, but uh, you do have to be ready. You need to assess that readiness before you go into a transaction. And then that assessment will help you understand whether it's the right time or not to sell in terms of the market and so on and so forth
0: well i think to your point augusto in a, in a really nice way i think that probably rounds out our you know our whirlwind journey of m&a and probably a few other journeys our listeners will be wondering when we start our exotic fish business and the, <laughs> I, the, there will be a whole nother podcast and the different animal noises that different <laughs> nations make because yes the you know, not all dogs go woof but i'll leave that for a for another show so i want to bring us to a to the last questions and as you know these are the ones i ask every guest so really fascinated to hear your answers to get the similarities and differences so the first one i say books but if you're not a reader it could be magazines podcasts but what is the book that you have given or you have read most and, and why is that it's funny actually
1: that i listened to your podcast and i was thinking which ones are the questions that he <laughs> I should pay more attention to the details, shouldn't I? Um, that is where the
0: devil is. It is know. where the devil is.
1: <laughs> the bugger. I mean, industrial reader, I used to read loads of different things. I'd read all sorts of different things, uh mostly through recommendation. And in fact, my dad was, and my brother is, even more so. So my family, all of them, and and now my my partner is even more so than me. So I read things that they recommended and all sorts of things. But uh, the question of which book do I, I have? I given given most, or most. has had the most impact on you? I think the author that I've given most away is Garcia Marquez, and that's because if you've read him in Spanish, but in English too, it's basically a pleasure. is It just sends your brain into overdrive, and it helps you think about different things. and it's a, there's all sorts of different books. There's one that I'm actually reading to my mom at the moment, who cannot read anymore, so I read to her, um, which is uh, Love, Love in the Time of Cholera. And I, I, yeah, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to read. So it's just how it flows, how it, it's like water on the pages. It's beautiful. So it's, it's a book that I've given many times. Well, some of his books I've Amazing. given many times to many people.
0: But I, I love. A, I, I'm assuming, by the way, that's a fiction book that isn't a, a yeah, business it's, book. it's a novel, and, and it's and I read lots of
1: business books, but I, I I think it'd be pretentious of me to recommend a business book because I I don't know about business as much as many other people. So there's
0: loads of them no, out no, there. I, I do love the you know, and I've said it on the show before. I, my failing is I I read too many business books and not enough nonfiction. So having a nonfiction, oh, sorry, having a not enough fiction. So having a fiction recommendation is brilliant.
1: Yeah, so there you go, we'll go go with that one. And there's, there's all sorts of any of his titles are fantastic.
0: Amazing. Well, and and then the last question, Augusto, and this is thinking back to your consulting days but the same with the businesses you advise is you have three people in, in front of you. One of them is just starting their consulting career. You know, I'd know them as an analyst. One is sort of in those middle grades. I know them as a manager, you know, they've they've done enough to have options, but they're not at the senior end. And then then one of them is is approaching partner level, or it might be someone who's, you know, going to be brought into owning equity and sort of a you know mid market firm like the ones you work with. And the question is what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? Get <laughs> yourself another job. <laughs> No,
1: I don't know why this is, and it might be something to do with me. But I struggle when someone asks me to give advice, and I I get paralyzed. I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know what to give my advice. I've got no idea. I mean, I cannot give advice. but I'm an man advice. I'm not. So, yes, that,
0: that is your title. <laughs> I know.
1: I'm an almost. I'm also a southern Spaniard, so I'm on a soapbox. So I'm an. <laughs> it's just one of those things. So, but uh, I'm a I'm a walking contradiction, I suppose. I think. I love consulting because of its nature, because it's the type of business it is. And I think to yeah. anybody starting in the middle or or in a more advanced stage of their career, it's going to feel the same way, in which it's absolutely relentless, as I've said a couple of times. But I do like that. I, li- I like it because it, it really pushes you all the time. So if you really like, learning and finding out where your limits are and then trying to find out, well, well how am I going to get out of this one and become better for it, but also be part of a team because I think consulting is intrinsically a team sport. This is a place to be. Now, what advice would I give you to further your career? Maybe raise your hand every now and then. <laughs> and say yes and I'll go for it and see what happens
0: Fantastic well I think some, some great advice obviously it's worked for you Augusto and, and I think a really good place to finish this so thank you very much I've really enjoyed it I, I've learned a lot about Spanish animal noises I never knew <laughs> and I've also learned a bit about MA, which has been useful for me and, and probably much more so for my listeners they, they're going to think we lost the plot with the animal noises yeah. but we'll, um, I'm sure it will make sense in the end and I guess the very last thing to ask for anyone who's listened to this wants to find out more about yourself wants to find out more about Vivero where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch?
1: LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best place. I think that I'm the only Augustan agree you ever find there. So it's pretty
0: easy to find me. So yeah, LinkedIn and drop me a message and then I'll get back. Fantastic, Augusto. Well, we'll put, like you say, I don't think there are many of you, but we will put a link to your profile in the show notes as well. So anyone listening can, can go and find them there. Just beware, I'm very passionate about all this stuff. I'll start talking and, <laughs> and then that's that. it. Well, you've, you've given the health warning that people, you know, they will get a good conversation <laughs> if they do reach out. But Augusto, this has been great. So thank you very much and, and all the best for the rest of your day. Thank you very much, Nick. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting if you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.